So we keep the Feast of Michaelmas, the shortening for St. Michael and all angels. Here's my sonnet for that occasion. Michaelmas gales assail the waning year, and Michael's scale is true. His blade is bright. He strips dead leaves and leaves the living clear to flourish in the touch and reach of light. Archangel, bring your balance. Help me turn upon this turning world with you and dance in the great dance. Draw near. Help me discern and trace the hidden grace in change and chance. Angel of fire, love's fierce radiance, drive through the deep until the steep waves part. Undo the dragon's sinuous influence and pierce the clotted darkness of my heart. Unchain the child you find there. Break the spell and overthrow the tyrannies of hell. A fugitive and exile, Jacob slept, a man of clay, his head upon a stone. And even in his sleep, his spirit wept. He lay down lonely and would wake alone. But in the night, he dreamt the heavens parted and glimpsed in glory as from heaven's core a ladder set for all the broken-hearted and earth herself becoming heaven's door. And when the nameless angel named him Israel, he kept this gift, whose depth he never knew, the promise of an end to all our exile. For now... A child of Israel finds it true and sees the one who heals the deep heart's aching as Jacob's dream becomes Nathaniel's waking. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be now and always acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Let's wonderful to be here uh, and great to see you all and um, to celebrate with you um, just briefly what has always been uh, an ancient feast of the church although more neglected more honored in the breach than the observance nowadays the feast of Michaelmas which is to Michael and all the angels I suppose what Christmas is to the very heart of our faith the Feast of Christ. It's the same thing of taking something and adding Mass at the end of it. it used to be a great holiday in England, uh, but it's also the name of the first term of the university where I teach in Cambridge. Um, it's always referred to as the Michaelmas term, though it starts actually just after Michaelmas. Um, but if you asked, however bright they might be, most Cambridge students, what is Michaelmas? They'd say, well, it's this term. They, <laughs> you know, they had no idea. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm going to be trying to spend a bit of this coming term telling some of my students at Girton what it was really all about. But uh, I'll just be bringing them the good news from Winnipeg, really. They'll, um... So um, Michaelmas is the feast of Michael and all angels, and it's the time of the year when the church just pauses to think for a minute about the way the angels themselves 
as it were, are patterned like little kind of flecks of gold or studs of reflective and shimmering material through the big, mainly human and, and darkly woven tapestry of scripture. Just every so often, they show up. They show up unexpectedly. Um, sometimes they show up in the most amazing, mind-boggling, um, totally psychedelic sort of Grateful Dead-esque manifestation, which they did to Ezekiel, who's obviously a kind of proto-Jerry Garcia. And uh, he sees the man, the wheels, the colours, the wings, the eyes, you had to be there, you know. And he just can't, you know, even begin to describe. He has to take little fragments of ordinary experience and reconfigure them to give you some idea of the breaking in temporarily into time of a supernal reality. Sometimes they're manifested as three weary strangers walking maybe slightly like a mirage through the desert, coming to a desperate and despairing couple, Abraham and Sarai, right on the edge of things, right at the end of their tether, finally giving in to doubt about the promise of that seed because the kids aren't coming and Sarah's way past it. And by the time those three strangers who turn out to be angels have left, we've heard Sarah laughing. And that's why the kid is called Isaac. Sometimes they manifest themselves in the most beautiful an awe-inspiring way of, co- of all, which is in and as and through music. As when, before the birth of Jesus, suddenly the heavens open and there is the resplendence and the glory and the joy and the song of the angels. So there they are, they're threaded through and they come at the key moments. They're quite hard to ignore, but they're also quite hard to get a handle on. Is there a consistent thread? Is there something that we can... Well, one of the most remarkable things that the angels almost always say, particularly the New Testament angels, is, do not be afraid. That seems to be the first message of the angels. Do not be afraid. And I guess they say it partly because they are so completely mind-blowing and they bring into the into the our mere pitiful three or maybe four dimensions, the multi-dimensioned, utterly other reality in which they rejoice and coruscate in their joy and glory before God, and it's just like too much for us. So we do stagger back, and they will say, don't worry, you know, do not be afraid. But of course, actually, that do not be afraid, noli timere, it says in the Vulgate, goes much deeper than that, much deeper than that. Now we have to reveal what I'm sure many of you already know, which is that the Greek word that we use for these supernal beings, these angels, is the word in Greek for messenger or message. They are bearers of angel. But what kind of angel, what kind of message? Well, they are bearers of, in Greek, evangel, good news. The reason why there is angel in the word evangelist is because evangel 
the the means gospel. It means good news. And it's a sure sign that an angel is indeed an angel from God, that they say, do not fear and bear good news. I should say just by the way, because I can't forbear to say it, that um, one of the great souls of our age, one of the great spirits who died uh, just in these last few weeks, the remarkable Irish poet Seamus Heaney, his son revealed at his funeral his father's last words. And Michael Heaney got up and he said, um, Heaney had gone into hospital for, a, for a, what should have been a routine operation and the family had left him there and left. And then clearly things went wrong. And um, Heaney had his phone with him. And the last thing he did in this life, as his son said, he texted us in his beloved Latin. <laughs> it's great. It's that last Latin text you know you want to send. And I don't know whether maybe it was the angel, that rejoicing angel that had come to bring that great poet home. He has a line in one of his poems which says, sing yourself to where the singing comes from. And that's where he was going. But he got out his phone and with his last effort in this world, he texted the words to his wife, Noli Timere, do not be afraid. Fantastic thing to do, the message of the angels. So, we've got this ark of the angels, and we, we need to know that they're there. They're not the heart, they're not the center. They're not the source and glory of all things. That is God, the holy and undivided trinity, shining upon us in the face of Jesus Christ. But wherever we see the face of Jesus Christ shining upon us, they seem to be hanging about the place, pointing in his direction. So we can't entirely ignore them, but we might be tempted to ignore them. We might, perhaps particularly in the 20th, maybe less in the 21st century, have become a little embarrassed by them for two reasons at least. One is that over the years, particularly from the 18th, 19th century onwards, the angels have been sadly domesticated dwindled, sentimentalized, and you get those sweet little puffy, fat-cheeked, cheruby things with wings peeking at you in a saccharine way out of greeting cards, don't you? <laughs> or worse, in the 19th century, in a kind of slightly transposed bit of, you know, um, male sort of um, fantasizing, I think, some, the angels, who are either of no gender, or full of eyes and, eyes and wheels, or are referred to as young men, two young men in shining white at the sepulchre, suddenly by the mid-19th century, angels are all delicate and pretty women with long hair and harps who just come floating in to give sort of male saints a positive stroke and feel good about themselves. <laughs> and um, There's a particularly appalling sculpture in one of the newer colleges in Cambridge, Selwyn, a 19th century college, which which has an ascended Christ looking sort of very smart with a slightly short haircut and like a sort of particularly good and promising young executive. And there's about five angels sort of falling at his knees and looking up, looking like sort of, you know, adoring secretaries from a sort of unredeemed 1950s office. And it is just dreadful. You know, what kind of message does that send? So... 
angels have been kind of sentimentalized, sentimentalized into something. And when some of these angels, the ones you see on the greetings card or in the sentimental 19th century paintings, they wouldn't have to say noli timere. They'd have to say noli ridere, don't laugh. <laughs> you know? So we've got a problem with angels there. Because that's the popular conception of angels, when we as Christians happen to cite a great piece of scripture where one of these extraordinary cardinal and turning points happen and there's an angel in it, we have a problem because people think it's one of these simpering little pseudo-artistic creations and not one of the great angels of God. So that's a problem. So understandably, the church began to get shy about angels began to forget Michaelmas, and um, as part of a general kind of demythologizing, as they called it in a horrible a word, a bit of a program in the 1950s in right on sort of, you know, theological colleges, you just had to strip out all that supernatural material. The church began to back off angels. Funnily enough, just as the back away from the angels program was reaching its pinnacle in the 60s, the world particularly the seeking world that had been turned off by the church in various ways, the world that was beginning to think about the age of Aquarius, began to com be completely wake up to angels. And now there's an entire angel industry out there. You know, you can go to angel workshops every night of the week. You can be told by various people how to contact your angel. And that's actually become another reason why the church is shying off. Because although I understand the revival of interest in angels... And I do understand that the angels, for some people, some seekers, might, be, might point people to Christ in the end. They might even be touching them, might be touching the hem of Christ's garment. But if they're real angels, if they're good angels, if they have evangel in them, they will bring those who touch them and find them to Christ. But unfortunately, although that may be the case in some cases, I have actually had a little look at some of the material that's out there, certainly in England, about contacting your angel and angel workshops and discerning through the tree of the Sephiroth who your angel really is. And the first thing I note is it's incredibly possessive. It's your angel, your personal servant. And then when you get a bit closer, it turns out that if you can only connect with your angel and channel your angel's energy right, then, I kid you not, the nub of it, as far as I can see, is your angel will fly off and get you stuff. It amounts to that. It amounts to a kind of archangelic power of positive thinking. I really want this. I'm going to connect with my angel. My angel will make this good thing happen for me. Even, I have to say, in some cases, my angel will make bad stuff happen for other people. But mainly it seems to be about acquiring stuff. And when you get to the end of the Angel Workshop book, you actually realize that these incomprehensible energies, these divine glories, these nine orders constantly giving praise, the angels and archangels with whom we will worship shortly, have actually been reduced in our discourse to sorts of cosmic personal shopping assistants. They really are just going out and getting stuff for you. So understandably, the church has fought shy there. But in my opinion, we just need to go back to the scriptures and back to our own deepest traditions to see a much more balanced, helpful, healthy, integrated way of thinking about what it means to have and to know that there is a ministry of angels. And it seems to me, most beautifully put, in that collect 
that we heard Jamie read, which we prayed together, which uh, has its roots in the Book of Common Prayer, going right back to the 16th century. Eternal God, you have ordained and constituted in a wonderful order the ministries of angels and mortals. That's the key. It puts them and us together, together as ministers. And we are together because they worship God, the Holy Trinity, in Christ just as much as we do. They want just as much as we do to give him glory. And their particular tasks are to set us free to help to give him glory. And the main problem with a misunderstanding or um, misdirection of our lives and energies when it comes to angels is when angels have become detached from Christ. Either detached into onto sentimental greetings cards or detached into a kind of unreconstructed, half-spiritualized desire of the ego, which is what a lot of that positive thinking tends to be. So when we bring them back in and to and towards Christ, suddenly they become themselves and become helpful. But that shouldn't be a surprise. When we bring anything, anything whatsoever in creation, in and back and to and towards Christ, it finds itself, it finds its proper place. Anything twisted away from that divine and beautiful source, that place of redemption, however good originally, becomes a terrible thing in isolation. Brought back in and to him, it's renewed. It renews its, its, its energy and uh, its wings like eagles. Um, there's a great moment in one of the Narnia books, Prince Caspian, that explains that perfectly. And because it's one of the best moments in the whole book, it was completely missing from the film. And um, uh, though it may also have been missing from the film because it involved Bacchus and it involved a regrettable episode of turning not only water into wine, but an entire river into wine. And I don't know, somehow that just didn't cut it in America. But um, you may remember that as part of liberating the town of Baruna, um, the, the river god comes. But Aslan, Aslan himself, summons up Bacchus and the Menads, the wild dancing girls that accompany Dionysus or Bacchus. And um, the vines come over and break the bridge and the river turns to wine and um, there's a great romp. And the two girls, Lucy and Susan, uh, with Aslan and Bacchus, end up going on this wild spree in which they liberate children from their horrible classrooms and give them a holiday and do a whole series of other obviously unambiguously good things. And when they finally finish this glorious romp with the primal powers of Bacchus, um, they collapse in a happy heap and um, Lucy says, goodness, that was great fun, but I shouldn't have felt quite safe with Bacchus and his fierce menads if Aslan hadn't been there. And Susan says, I should think not. <laughs> But when Aslan is there, we can party. So how do we bring the angels and our understanding of angels back to Christ? Well, that's where I come back to the two readings we heard this evening, set by the lectionary for the feast day of Michael and all angels, beginning in the Old Testament with that vision, that vision in promise that there might one day be a door, a gate of heaven a house of God, a ladder connecting the two. And he sees it in vision, and he sees the angels of God ascending and descending.
And that's the beginning, in a way, of that, the sealing of that long, hoping, relationship in hope, waiting for that connection to be complete that Israel, ancient Israel was witness to in the world. Then we come to this extraordinary moment in John's Gospel. And when, at last, Nathaniel has recognized who Jesus is, because Jesus has first recognized him, he knows because he has been known. Jesus says to him, Ah, oh, Nathaniel, a true Israelite, name-checking Israel, Jacob, the one who saw the ladder. And then he makes this promise to Nathaniel and to all of us. It's the plural you in the Greek. He says, You will see more than this. You will see, then he starts riffing on Genesis. You will see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending. And you can see Nathaniel, I know this one, I know this one, wait, stop. You're going to say on Jacob's ladder. Yeah, I've, I finally win something in a pub quiz. And uh, so he's just waiting for Jesus to complete the famous quotation. And that's where we should get the shock. So Jesus says, you will see the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. There we have the most hidden and the most beautiful of all the I am sayings in John. I am Jacob's ladder. I am that connection. All the messages, the angeloi, that we might have for God, go up to him in and through Christ. Every one of the angeloi, the messages and promises of God to us, as Paul puts it so beautifully, all his promises find their yes in Jesus. He is that point of connection between heaven and earth. And I'm sure in him and from him and through him, those particular angelic beings, however we might want to begin to imagine it, that might have a particular role in guarding and protecting us, come. And is in him and with him and through him that we will join very shortly the innumerable angels of heaven. When we say, therefore, with angels and archangels and with all the company of heaven, we proclaim thy glorious name and we sing, holy, 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 the song of the angels. We believe in a God who is creator of all things visible and invisible. The angels may be invisible, but they are thronging in our midst, joining our worship and saying, holy, holy, holy. But I want to finish having mentioned the invisible ones that ready to join St. Benedict's table now. I want to finish with the visible ones. Since angels are messengers, they don't actually have to be multidimensional, bodiless, um, hypercosmic intelligences. Uh, they could actually be human beings like you and me. Anyone that is given for a moment with the last breath to bear to another person the evangel, the good news, the yes from God, in whatever form, has become for that moment an angel. Practice hospitality, for by so doing some have entertained angels unawares. All of us may have become or may be being, in one way or another, angels unawares. And it's in that belief and to unveil that truth that I'm going to finish this sermon with a song which is for all of you.